turning our Bibles to Psalm 119. I trust a familiar, well-known psalm to, to many of you. I just want to spend uh, the next two Sundays diving into the first three sections of this, this wonderful psalm. I do so mainly for selfish reasons. Um, the last few months I've just been slowly making my way through this psalm and um, a couple years ago just began to teach one section a year to our church and was able to make it through the third section. So I just want to take us through these next couple weeks, uh, these three sections. So let's begin together. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. The psalmist writes, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I will give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Gracious Father, we, we read the words of a man who is inspired by you, who loved you and yet who like us, was still sinful and still failed in his pursuit of holiness and his pursuit of happiness. So I pray this morning, Lord, as we, as we learn from our elder brother, as we learn from his teaching, his instruction, even his experience, that our own lives, Lord, might be modeled after his, that our own walks, Lord, might be conformed to Christ. We might seek you with the whole heart. Lord, we pray for your assistance now, for I cannot preach, and nor can these men and women receive your word without the power and the grace of your spirit. We ask you these things with great hope and anticipation in Christ's name. Amen. The underlying theme of this message is really what motivates every man and woman on the face of this earth. Behind every single thing that you and I do, behind every single thing that you and I pursue, is at the end of it all, the pursuit of joy. Everything that you and I do really has the goal of, in some way, becoming happy. To find some measure of satisfaction, some measure of joy. Maybe... You know, last couple of weeks you went to the theater. Maybe you said, hey, the new Mission Impossible's out. It's supposed to be one of the best action movies of all time. Let's go. Nobody came. Nobody came and said, let's go to the theater. Let's go see the worst movie that's ever been made. Right? Nobody roots for his team to lose. Why? Because the joy comes into winning. How about... In the Czech Republic, you know, the Czechs are, they're famous for their Czech beer, right? The Pilsner. And people all the time, hey man, let's go for a beer. Nobody says, hey, let's go out for some sewage water. Right? Why? I don't need to answer. Right? What about marriage? Right? 
when the man comes to the woman, what does he say? I want to marry you because I want to be miserable for the rest of my life. No. I want to marry you because being with you fills me with joy. Because I, I long for you. I cannot be happy with anybody else besides you. And then a few months or a few years into the marriage, right, the wife or maybe even the husband comes and says, sweetie, it's time to, it's time to ruin our joy. Let's have kids. It's time to be miserable for the rest of our existence. Let's have five. No. There's a longing. There's, a, there's an urging in the side of a married couple that we might find joy in having children together. Everything we do is ultimately underlied by the pursuit of joy. Even, even bad things like divorce. A person may come and say, My, I can no longer find the joy that I was expecting. I'm going to leave this and look for it somewhere else. Even suicide. Suicide is looking for a way out because the joy, the satisfaction of life, it cannot be found. The person is so at an end of himself, so empty, full, so full of despair. He says, maybe I can find it and take it in my own life. This is why Psalm 119 is so wonderful. Because it points us to ultimate joy. It points us to ultimate joy. I don't need to tell you that we live in a world that's plagued. It's plagued by, by deception. It's plagued by false joys that seek to, to lure people in with the promise of satisfaction. And it ends up leaving them broken, shattered, and destroyed by sin. But Psalm 119, and specifically the verses we have before us, verses 1 through 8, they show us how a man, a woman, even a child, can find joy, and joy that is forever and eternal. So I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, in point number one, the source of joy. The source of joy. Look again at verses one through three. He writes, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Now, this word, blessed, it's somewhat of an archaic word. You know, even we say it, I think, a lot of times without really knowing what it means, right? The Lord bless you. Uh, have a blessed week. Have a blessed honeymoon. Have a blessed vacation, right? I hope your job is a new blessing to you. What does that mean? In our pursuit of understanding of this word, we need to understand that, well, we have one English word that is used to translate two Hebrew words. The first time this, this, uh, this idea, translated blessing, appears is in Genesis 1.22, where we read, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So here we see the, the, this verb here, God blessed them. Without getting too technical, I would just define this as a promise of goodness from God. It's a promise of goodness from God. It's a promise that God's going to use His power to bring good about in, in the life of, in this case, Adam and Eve. 
or verse 28. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So again, we see this promise. God blessed them. He promises he's going to use his power to work good in their lives. We see the same thing later on. After God had destroyed the world because of sin and the flood. In Genesis 9.1, we read, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why is our world currently filled with billions of people? Because God blessed Noah. He was faithful to use his power for Noah's and even our good. And then God did the same and said the same with Abram. And Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. So I'm going to work good in your life. I'm going to bring good about in your life. And I'm even going to use you as a means to bring good into the lives of others. And this is all confirmed even as far as Abraham is concerned in Genesis 24 verse 1. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age. And the Lord blessed Abraham in every way. God used his power to bring about good in Abraham's life. That's important for us to understand, namely because that's not the word that the psalmist uses in Psalm 119, verse 1. He uses another term, the second term that we unfortunately translate with the same English word. You actually know this word. You might be familiar with it, uh, Asherah. John was just telling me, I think it's his nephew, he's named Asher. You know what this means because of Genesis 30, verse 13. Genesis 30, verse 13. And we read where Leah, the unloved wife of Jacob, had another son through her maidservant. And when she saw the boy, Genesis 30, verse 13, listen to what she says. Happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him, and then they translated Asher. But to be consistent, they really should have said, Happy am I, for one will call me happy. And so she named him Happy. Because that's what Asher means. Three times she uses the same word to explain the joy that she has received through having another child. And what she is doing here is she is announcing, if you will, her, her emotional state. She is announcing her status. She is announcing what she is feeling, the euphoria that she is experiencing because of this child. And brothers and sisters, that's what the psalmist is saying. Blessed is the man. Well, what does that mean? I mean, does it mean he's got a a new car, a new house? All the things that, the, that, that, that Americans were pursuing because they, they're convinced that in this next object I will find what I'm looking for. He says, how happy I am. My current status, my state, my position is one of happiness, is one of joy. Now I ask you, how do you fill the rest of that sentence in? How happy is the person who what? Who has endless money. How happy is the person 
with endless freedom. How happy is the person who can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants. If we walk across the street right now to the, to the train station, and we just walk up to people and say, hey, I want you to fill in the blanks. How happy is the man who... What are you going to hear? Well, I'll tell you what you're not going to hear. You are not going to hear what the psalmist says. There is nobody outside of the walls of a Bible-believing church who would ever say what the psalmist says. How blessed, how happy, how joyful are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Contrary to, to most human thinking, everyday reasoning will not come up with the fact that law is good and even necessary to establish joy. The psalmist says so clearly that God's law is established so that a person might have joy, that he might be able to say, I'm blessed, I'm happy. Now it's important just, to, just before I move on, to, to explain what this, this word, translated law, is getting at. Because it's far more than, than simply and mere rules and, and regulations. Uh, again, I think you might be familiar with the term Torah, which is what is, this word is translated here into to law. The Jews define Torah, first of all, as the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But, but more than just uh, some books, more than just in, uh, commands and laws, it was, it was a book and is a book of instruction. It is a book of explanation. We could even say it is a book of life. Because this, this book, these first five books, explain what life is, where life comes from, why, why, life, why life is, period. It explains even why, why life has gone bad because of sin. And even in, in Genesis 3.15, there is even the, the beginnings of the gospel, an explanation of how life gone bad is going to be made right with God and his plan, sending Christ to crush the head of the serpent. And so it's a book of life, and it is a book of instruction. It is a book of instruction on how to live life, how to enjoy life. And that is why the psalmist can say how happy are those who walk in the path laid out in the instructions of Torah. Now, all of us ultimately understand this. Three years ago, the last time we were here with my family, we went to the happiest place on earth. No, not Cornerstone Bible Church. We went to Disneyland. We went on all the roller coasters, upside down, Back, forth, sideways, screaming kids, popcorn, cotton candy, you know, all the, all the fun stuff you do in the happiest place on earth. But you know what? The happiest place on earth, what does it have? It has rules. It has regulations. It has laws. What do you have to do if you want to get in? You have to buy a ticket. If you, if you hop the fence, what's going to happen? You get arrested. If you want to ride a ride, what do you do? You have to wait in line, sometimes two hours, maybe more. And then when you get on a ride, because you want to have fun, what do you have to do when you get on the ride? 
Sunday school question. You got to put on your seatbelt. Right? Sometimes you actually got to put on those, those bars that come down and they hold you in. If you're going to go on California screaming, I put those bars that, that just pinch you into the seat. Now, why those kinds of laws? Why those kinds of regulations? Well, because of this. Because if you want to have fun on the ride more than one time, you have to put on your seatbelt. Because what happens if you don't strap your seatbelt? You ride one time. And your joy is cut off. Because you fall out from 120 feet. And you paint the sidewalk with your blood. So Disneyland, in wisdom, gives rules, regulations, and laws. Not to constrain your joy, but to extend it. So you can ride as many times as you possibly can. And this is why God has given us his word. God's word is not burdensome. God's law is not burdensome. We read the scriptures, laws, laws, and, and people come read the Bible and say, laws, laws, laws. But they're blind to the fact that, that everywhere there are laws to promote our joy, to promote our happiness, to promote our goodness. In fact, to be more, even more precise of what the psalmist is saying here, he's not talking about a ride at Disneyland. Disneyland is not the happiest place on earth. He says in verse 2, How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. The parallelism here. We walk and observe his testimonies. And in doing so, we walk with God. We seek after God. We walk in relationship and in fellowship with God. This is why the unbeliever is wrong. When he thinks that Christianity is just a devised system of rules and regulations meant to kill your joy. Because rules regulate all of our relationships. No sane person enters into marriage thinking that fidelity is going to make his marriage worse. Your promise to stay faithful and monogamous in marriage is underlay with the belief that this will make your marriage better. It will be better for you. It will be better for your wife. It'll be better for your children. And what about friendships? I mean, regulations, undefined if they are, are involved in your friendships. John's my friend. And I know that he's one to do a lot to serve me. And if I show up at his house unannounced, walk into his door, start loading up grocery bags with his food, take his electronics, and drive off in his car, it's going to hurt our relationship. Because there, there are regulations, there are rules, there are laws, if you will, that define a relationship, that, that keep our relationship a good one. And it is the same with God. God's rules and regulations sustain and grow our relationship with him so that our joy would be increased and be made full. Now track with me here. Look at the connection here. He says that, that there's a connection here with blessedness, with blessedness and blamelessness. 
And then, in verse 2, the blessedness and observing God's commandments. And so I want to point out something I think is really (laughs) profoundly important. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who who walk perpetually in God's word, who, who obey his commandments. And so here's the point. If you want to be happy, you must be holy. If you want to be happy, you must be holy. Holiness is fundamental to true and abiding happiness. I think, first of all, we see that in these first three verses. We can go to numerous texts in the scriptures. But just for example, look at Hebrews 12, verse 14. Hebrews 12, verse 14, where he writes, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, the holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So so what is at stake in your personal sanctification? What is at stake in your personal holiness? Not just becoming unholy. He says that without this holiness, you will not see God. But on the contrary, on the other end, this is why the psalmist can say in Psalm 16, verse 11, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of what? Fullness of joy. Fullness of happiness. Fullness, completeness of blessing. He says to the Father, in your right hand, our pleasures for five minutes. No, forever. So my question to you this morning is where, where is the joy that every single person from Orange County to Cladno is looking for? Where is it found? Where is the joy that you are constantly, daily, hourly seeking. Now listen to me. You know the answer. But here's the problem. You don't believe it, and neither do I. You and I, believers as we are, do not believe that the joy, the happiness, and the satisfaction that we're looking for is actually in the presence of God. And this is why we don't pursue holiness. We don't believe and we're not convinced that holiness will lead to our happiness. We're not convinced that being in the presence of a holy God is what will bring us unending infinite joy. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are clear. Holiness and happiness go hand in hand. Holiness and happiness go together like marriage and fidelity. My my grandparents were married for 71 years. And as far as I know, they were both very faithful to one another. And from what I can tell, being with them when I was with them, they loved one another. My grandfather, he loved his wife. To his very last breath, there was no other woman in his life There were no other affections. 
And as far as I know, my grandmother was a godly woman whose affections were placed solely upon her husband. And when we went to their anniversary celebration, it wasn't just for them. It was for us. It was stupendous to see a couple 71 years in marital joy. But if one of them would have broken their vows, would have walked away at 30 years, at 40 years, at 50 years, they never would have experienced the joy, nor would I have seen them together for 71 years. And the point is that there can be no happiness without holiness. This truth is seen again in verse 3. He says, they also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Why do they do no unrighteousness? Because the law is a burden? Because they love pain? They love boredom? No. Because they come to understand that holiness leads to happiness. They walk in the path laid out for them in the scriptures because they have discovered that obedience to God's word secures their joy. So that's point number one, the source of joy. But I want you to look secondly now. Look at secondly at the hindrance to joy. Verses four through six, the hindrance to joy. He says, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I will not be ashamed when I look upon your commandments. Now notice, first of all, in verse 4, with whom he, he speaks. He says, you have ordained your precepts. He, he's speaking with God. Psalm 119 is not just a, a psalm. It's not just a song. It's not just a poem. It's a prayer. And we learn how to pray to God even through this prayer. In verse 4, the psalmist speaks of all believers generally when he writes, you have ordained your precepts that we, all of us, should keep them diligently. But verse 4 is just a setup for the real issues in verses 5 and 6. Here, the author stops talking about them. He stops talking about we. Now, he starts talking about himself. He says, oh, that my ways, that my ways, that my life may be established to keep your statutes. In other words, he's saying he's not the man he just described in verses 1 through 3. He's not the blessed man. He's not the holy man. He's not the righteous man. He's not the one who's walking perpetually in the law of the Lord. He's not observing God's testimonies. He's not seeking God with all of his heart. In other words, he's saying he's a sinner. He's confessing his unholiness. And brothers and sisters, what is the first thing that goes when you fall into unholiness? Your happiness. Sin hinders our happiness, chokes out our joy. Unholiness grieves the Spirit of God, and it robs us of our joy in Christ. And that's what he's experiencing. He's lost that sense of blessing. He's lost the, the happiness, the joy. And so he cries out, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. I want the hindrances removed. I know where happiness comes from, and I'm not there. 
I want to walk in truth, but I fail. I want to walk in purity, but I stumble. My joy has been dammed up. It's been stopped. It's dried up. Because I don't keep your word. In fact, he says in verse 5, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. That word comes from, essentially means to, to carve or, or to engrave. In the days of the psalmist, contracts and covenants were engraved on stone, signifying the impossibility of changing the agreements and the covenants that were made. And he says, I, God, I want your unbreakable statutes. I want your laws engraved upon my heart. That my heart would run the way of your commandments. That my heart would obey naturally the way of your commandments because they lead me to you. And again, I just want you to think of marriage. Joy, long-term joy comes in faithfulness to the covenants made. The man promises to have and to hold to love and to cherish in sickness and in health until when? Until death. And the wife the same. And your joy and integrity and honor are bound up in those promises. And when you fail in those promises, your joy is removed and your marriage can even be broken. And the psalmist is essentially experiencing that in his relationship with God. His joy is dried up because his relationship with God is not what it ought to be. Now we need to admire this man because he unashamedly confesses his imperfections for all to read. I'm a sinner and I'm fine with all of you knowing it is what he's saying. I'm unashamed that people at church know my sin. I'm unashamed that my, my neighbor knows what's, what I've done. That's not what shamed him. That's not what grieved him. What mattered to him most is not that Marcus Denny knows, that Pastor John knows, that, that Pastor Isaiah knows, that, that Elder Huey knows, that, that you know. What mattered to him most is that God knew. His shame came in verse 6. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. When I open your word and I look at who you are, what you've done for me and what I've done to you, I'm ashamed. I just finished two weeks of intensive D-men studies. And the week before I was to go down to class, in expectation of sitting under one of my favorite preachers, I got an email that this, this preacher, this pastor, this instructor had been disqualified from his ministry and removed from the pastor because he was in an adulterous relationship. When I got that email, I was literally two miles from where he lived. And I laid in bed that night. And I, I couldn't sleep. And I just went through, how does a man do this? How does he fall into this kind of sin? But the thing I thought about most was, how does he tell his wife? How do you come to your wife 
who has been with you for 30 years, who has slept in the same bed with you for 30 years, who has borne your children, who has kissed your lips, who has, who has turned away the advances of other men to be faithful to you, who has served you countlessly. How do you look at her in the face and say, I have given myself to another lover. I cannot, I cannot imagine anything more grievous except for this. To look God in the face and to say to him, I have been unfaithful to you. I have loved other gods more than you. I have pursued my joy in all the things the world offers because I believe that they were better than you. To look into God's commandments, to see his affections for you, his steadfast faithfulness to you, unmoved, unwavering, unflinching. And then for us to say, but I love so many other things more than you. This is what shamed the psalmist. This is what ought to shame us. This is what ought to shame us, and this is what ought to break our hearts. Because this is what we do every single day. Every single day, God is pouring out his love. Every single day, God is lavishing his love. And yet, like an unfaithful husband, we go to another woman. Ah, maybe I'll find it here. Maybe I'll find it here. Maybe I'll find it here. Another glass. Another game. Another look. Another purchase. Yet perpetually, perpetually failing to find the joy we're looking for. Why? Because it's not there. It's only in God. It's only in Christ. And brothers and sisters, we have to come to see very clearly that holiness is what will lead us to happiness. And anything that hinders that holiness is going to hinder your happiness. We've seen the source of joy. We've seen the hindrance to joy. Look now at the pursuit of joy. Verses 7 through 8. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. So he's coming full circle. He said, I know this is what will bring happiness. This is where, I, where I'm at. I'm not walking in holiness like I ought to. But I'm committed. I'm committed to it. I'm committed to pursuing you. I will give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Now, just track with me for a second. Why would the psalmist give thanks to God when he learns God's righteous judgments. Why does he give thanks to God when he learns obedience? Because of this. Because like all of us, he knows that the power to obey comes from God himself. 
Any growth in holiness, any growth in walking with God comes from God. He knows that he will never be able to obey God and stay near to God apart from the grace of God. He knows that because he's a sinner, he will return over and over and over like a dog to its vomit, hoping it tastes better a second time around. Even though he knows that it won't satisfy him. And so he knows, God, the only way I can break this cycle, the only way I can put to death my lust, my sin, and the deception that these false empty joys offer me is by your power, by your grace, by your strength. Help me, help me, and I will give thanks to you for what you've done in my life by your own grace. Brothers and sisters, that's why God in his sovereignty has left the words of this man for you and I. Because we're just like this man. We're just like him. We know the same truths that he knows. We've experienced the same sins that he's experienced. And now this morning, this Sunday, we come back full circle another week to express the same things that this man expresses. God help me. God help me. Last Sunday's sermon, it's been digested. It's gone. This Sunday's sermon will, by God's grace, strengthen you for a few days until next Sunday, until the cycle starts again. We are constantly, endlessly in need of the reminders that our grace is in Christ and our joy is in Christ. And that we must fight until the end and never give up. We must commit like the psalmist in verse 8. I will keep the statutes. I will be faithful to you. Do not forsake me. In other words, I'm committed to this. I will fail. Don't forsake me. This man experienced 3,000 years ago what you and I experience every day. The failure of sin. The loss of joy. Which is why he is so intense in verse 8. Do not forsake me. I promise to keep your statutes. I plead for you not to forsake me. That is what this text leads us to, brothers and sisters. It leads us to holiness. And in doing so, leads us to happiness. And it does so ultimately by leading us to Christ. It leads us to holiness and thus leads us to happiness. And yet all of this is done by leading us to Christ. Even if the psalmist is not directly describing Jesus Christ in verses 1 through 3, they, they certainly end up pointing us to him. Because there is only one man on the face of this earth. There is only one man that has ever existed and that will ever exist who is completely and wholly blameless. There is only one man who sought God with all of his heart, who obeyed every law of the scriptures, who is perfectly holy. And therefore, there is only one man who has experienced maximal joy who has experienced the heights of happiness. One man. He had a perfect relationship with the Father. 
He had a pristine heart. He had an unblemished conscience. He was, he was never depressed by any wrongdoing. He was never convicted by the Holy Spirit of any personal sin. He never tasted the bitterness of sin. He never tasted the, the, the depression that resulted from, from being enslaved to lust or to immorality. He never felt the guilt that came later on <clears throat> having stolen something from someone else. He was always endlessly blessed, happy, and joyful because he never sought his joy in empty places. He never experienced the emptiness that comes and the depression that comes from returning to vomit. He never wasted his time. He never wasted his mornings. He never wasted his opportunities. He was a perfect man, a holy man, and therefore the happiest man who ever walked this earth. And yet, brothers and sisters, this happiest man and this holiest man became the saddest man that ever lived. by becoming the un unholiest man that ever lived. That Jesus Christ, upon that wood, took your sin and thus your sorrow, your despair, and your, your unholiness upon himself. That the night before in the garden, as the, the, the reality began to set in. As he's, he's praying, he falls down in the garden. Father, remove this cup from me. This, this darkness, as I peer into the cup, as I peer and I see this cauldron of your wrath that's going to be poured out into me. If it is possible, remove it from me. What does the father do? He says, no, son. And he, he puts the cup in his son's hand. And he tilts the cup back into his son's lips. And he holds it to his son's mouth until all of the contents have been drunk down to the dregs by his son. The infinite, furious, and holy wrath of God consumed Christ. As the great darkness of our sins and the great fury of God's wrath was poured out upon him. Why? So that his joy might become yours. So that his happiness might become yours. By means of his holiness becoming yours. Jesus Christ died to make you holy and thus died to make you happy. To make you happy in himself. To make you happy in the Father. Jesus Christ died to bring to you what you spent your entire life looking for but could not find. And so if you are here this morning, if you are here this morning, I have one simple plea. Come to Christ. If you don't know Christ, come to him. I know you're looking for joy. I know you want to be happy. And if you do not have Christ, I know this, you are not happy. Because you cannot be. 
you cannot be happy drinking sewage. You will be happy drinking in the holiness of Christ. You need to repent of your sin. You need to acknowledge to God that like the psalmist, you have sought infinite joy in a coffee cup. You have sought infinite joy in temporal things. You have broken your life. You have shattered yourself. Maybe you've broken your marriage. Maybe you've destroyed your family. Maybe you've ruined your reputation. And everything that you have tried to fix in your own flesh has only made it worse. Come to Christ. Stop turning like a dog to its own vomit in hopes that you'll find that it will taste better the second time. Turn to Christ. Take the hand extended to him now. I would just plead, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, or if you're here this morning and you realize, I've been faking it, don't wait. Don't say, I need to, I need to think about this more. I need, to, I need to meditate upon this more. I need to go home and think about this more. No. If you're on your way to Taco Bell and someone invites you to Ruth's Chris, you don't say, I need to go home and think about it. You say, yes, I'll go. You're going to buy me a $100 steak. And Christ is offering you eternal life. He is offering you eternal joy. Everything that you're looking for, He is offering it for you now in Him. Just repent and forsake your sin and follow after Christ. And you will receive fullness of joy. You'll never be happy until you are holy. And you, brothers and sisters, who already know Christ, you've already tasted the good things to come, You've already tasted His holiness and you already have tasted His happiness. Have you not also tasted the bitterness of sin? Are you not like me? Are you not like me? I need to hear this every single day. Because I still in my flesh think that I can find happiness outside of Christ. I can find happiness, not in His ways, but in my own. And so if we are here this morning again to confess our folly, to confess our foolishness, and to confess that what we long for and what we need is all found in Christ. Commit afresh this week. Commit afresh this day with a psalmist to following after Christ. Say with him, I will keep your statutes and pray with him. Do not forsake me utterly. Do not forsake me utterly. Live for Christ because Christ lived and died for you. Slay your flesh again this morning. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for flesh in regard to its lusts. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Cleanse yourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we know the source of joy. 
your commandments lead us to yourself and into your presence. We know the hindrances of joy is our own sin and our own folly. Therefore, this, this morning we again commit. We commit to the pursuit of joy. We will obey your statutes. Do not forsake us. Help us. Help me. Help my brothers and sisters to know the fullness of joy that comes in the pursuit of you and walking in obedience to your commands. We pray these things by faith in the name of your precious Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.